and welcome to Aviation Past and Present with John Skeen and myself, Graham Joyce. Welcome, John. First program this year. Yes, Graham. It's uh, it's really great to be back. I, I really enjoy doing this program. And you're kicking off the year with one of the most intriguing stories of the 20th century. If you say so. <laughs> it's one that I've looked at over the years and I've read lots of articles and stories and I I must confess, I'm still not convinced. Okay. This is a, a story about a gentleman called <laughs> Rudolf Hess. Yes, no. well, well-known German gentleman, close friend of another character called Adolf Hitler. Yes, he was the 2IC, apparently. Mm. And I, as a child, I was brought up on this story because my mother had, uh, let's say, some family connections with the Scottish side of the story. Right. But we'll, we'll work on that as we get through. Okay. Give us the background. Give you the background. Goodness me. Um, World War II was underway. It had been for a couple of years. Uh, the deputy Führer, Mr. Hess, he thought he would take himself off to Scotland as a, as a, um, a peace envoy. He really wanted to bring the war to an end for various right. reasons. Which sounds like a pretty good idea, though, doesn't oh, it? Would have been wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but a whole series of questions then come out of that right away. Mm-hmm. First one, why Scotland? Why Scotland? Uh, he had a notion, in fact, he said in a memoir that it came to him in a dream that he should approach a gentleman called the Duke of Hamilton who had an estate in central Scotland. I think he'd met him once uh, when the Duke of Hamilton was in Germany for some reason. Mm. But he also thought the Duke of Hamilton uh, had connections at a high level where they were thinking about um, suing for peace, if I can say that. Mm. So he went on a bit of a whim, really. <laughs> so what was the... Uh, May the 10th, 1941, there's a Scots farmer, David McLean. Yep. McLean. He finds a... A Messerschmitt aeroplane ablaze in his field. He did. And a guy with a parachute. And the guy with a parachute was none other than Rudolf Hess. Can you imagine the <laughs> astonishment on, on Mr. <laughs> McLean's face? Yeah. Well, I guess he saw the man in a German uniform um, lit up by the light of a blazing Messerschmitt. And just thought it was a, a, uh, uh, a, a crashed uh, aeroplane. Yeah, yeah, from Germany. The, and, and the German identified himself uh, as uh, Alfred Horn. It's the same initials, but uh, I'm not sure why he even did that. Mm. However, uh, he he was um, taken to the farmer's cottage, and the farmer's wife very kindly made him a cup of tea, and uh, that's when they discovered he was uh, Rudolf Hess, the 2IC of the German high command. (laughs) Can can you imagine the scene? Excuse me, dear, would you mind making Rudolf Hess a cup of tea? He's just dropped in for scones. (laughs) Ah, well, yes. (laughs) Well, this guy had joined the Nazi party in 1920, and uh, he was um, a friend of Hitler's at the time, and they were involved in the the beer hall push, and he also served in Langsburg prison uh, with um, Hitler at the time, and uh, apparently took the dictation for Hitler's book Mein Kampf. Right. So he uh, he was pretty much up with the hierarchy, you could say. Indeed, and that's what makes the story even more kind of strange, doesn't it? It's a very strange story. Anyway, keep going. It'll uh, get stranger still. It'll get stranger. Yeah, well, just hang in a minute. 
As deputy Führer, uh, Hess was positioned only behind Hermann Goring in the hierarchy. Uh, and they, they really had a stranglehold on Europe at that mm, time. Mm. Hess appeared in Scotland on a self-appointed peace mission. And uh, this was just before Hitler had eyes on invading Russia. Which, again, so, is one of those strange yeah. incidents. Who would want to, want to fight a large war on two fronts? Exactly. <laughs> Going off on, on a tangent, I was reading a war history in the last year or so when Hitler's original plan had been to invade all of Europe and he thought 1946, 1947, that's when he would go around and invade Russia. But instead... <laughs> He suddenly brings it forward six or seven years. Oh, it was a, well, that was probably the end of the whole thing, or, or the start of the end. Indeed, uh -huh. yes. Ah, uh, no, we'll, we'll pick up the thread here. Yes. Um, what can I say? Had his uh, mission been successful, the war could have ended quite differently. Mm, um, mm. And people thought that uh, Hess, uh, it wasn't Hess at all, but a body double put up by the Germans, but that's never been proved or disproved. Right. Uh, it's all happened a long time ago. Anyway, moving on. I've got a couple of pictures here of the wreckage of this aircraft, and uh, Amy 110 was quite big, and they usually had a crew of two or three. Mm. Uh, but rumour has it that um, being a man of uh, some um, prestige and, and a friend of Willie Messerschmitt, he had the plane converted to help him fly it solo, and with extra fuel for a mission to Scotland. Yes, indeed. And that uh -huh. plane's actually, parts of it are on in a museum now, aren't uh, they? Yes, it's, um, it's in several museums, in fact. I have to just think about where they actually are, but um, there's mm. engines, I think, in a Scottish museum, and the fuselage bits are in, in the museum at Hendon, I think it is. Mm. Mm. So there we are. Anyway, he, um, he took off from an airfield called Augsburg near Munich, which is actually quite into the southern part of Germany. Uh, you'd think it might have taken off somewhere a bit near the north, but mm. it was quite a long flight. <laughs> um, he showed a lot of skill navigating by himself to um, to get to this little old house in the middle of a grouse moor in Scotland with no radio aids or lights or beacons. Mm. It was all done dead reckoning. Uh, by half past ten at night, he was over Scotland. He was out of fuel and he was forced to bail out about uh, 12 miles from his destination. Which is not bad going, is it? I think he did quite well. Indeed. <laughs> he didn't have GPS either. No. <laughs> he probably had um, uh, stiffness in the joints, I'd say, by that time. Exactly. Anyway, um, he, he was aiming for a place called Dungavel House, which was the, uh, uh, the estate or the house on the estate of the Duke of Hamilton. It was no small place. But I don't suppose it was lit up at that time of night. Exactly. Um, he believed, or Hess believed wrongly, that the Duke of Hamilton uh, was part of a faction of people who were um, wanting to uh, make peace with the Nazis. And, and uh, there were a faction within the British... I, um, I believe so. Yeah. The Duke of Hamilton wasn't one of them. Right. <laughs> um, the Duke wasn't home that night. He was actually... Uh, doing his duty as the commander of an RAF base called Turnhouse um, on the west coast of Scotland. Which shows that he most certainly wasn't <laughs> yes, part of the... No. Yes. Um, and um, Hess's uh, 
mission, if you like, took a bit of a bad turn when, on meeting the Duke of Hamilton, uh, he, the Duke said, I don't even know who you are, basically. Mm. What are you doing here? Yes. And so he was marched off to prison. And he was so distraught, uh, Mr. Hess, that he tried to kill himself, but um, throwing himself down a flight of stairs didn't work. Right, <laughs> right. I guess the security agencies were in full, oh, full blast trying to I would think figure so. it out. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it's one of those stories that just... Can you imagine the knock on the door? Excuse him, uh, Mr Churchill, Prime Minister Churchill. Um, <laughs> Rudolph Hess has popped over for a chat. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes. I'll have to have a cigar and think about this. Exactly. Well, what happened in Berlin uh, equally... Uh, it was a bit of a bombshell. Um, and Nazi authorities uh, quickly disassociated with uh, themselves, if you like, from this planned flight. Mm, mm. Um, uh, what can I say? Uh, the, the German public was you know, made aware of this flight, but they were told that the man was disarranged and they had mental problems. Mm. And... Uh, he, the Germans were, uh, yeah, they tried really hard to um, distance themselves from this flight. So mm. he got no help from his um, from the British and no help from his German friends. He was right. kind of on his own. Exactly, because I, I know <clears throat> here in the notes that um, Goebbels noted his worries in a private diary on May 14th that the German public was rightly asking how such a fool could be second to the Führer. <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? Well... He must have kept it to himself. Mm. Right, what shall we say now? Um, the There is a uh, tenuous connection between Mr. Hess and Willie Messerschmitt, who designed the said mm. ME110, and uh, it's believed that um, he was trained to fly this aircraft solo um, and uh, was modified by Messerschmitt to help him you know, mm. complete this trip to Scotland. So there's a bit of intrigue there. Uh, in the afternoon of the of the day in question, the, the plane was fueled up and uh, it had extra drop tanks for the long flight. And he took off about quarter to six in the evening, flew up over Germany, flew across Holland and up towards the North Sea. Why nobody shot him down in the process, I'll never know. Lucky man, that's <laughs> right. I know it was getting dark, but there was lots of radars around Germany at that time and mm. possibility of night fighters. And um, How he actually got there without being detected is, is another mystery. Indeed. What um, Are there any records pertaining to what he told his adjutant and, and the Mischer Smith staff? Did he, he must have had some story of why he wanted a fueled-up aircraft. He must have filed some kind of flight plan, I guess. Well, I was wondering about flight plans myself. Um, there doesn't seem to be anything. Mm. It's quite strange. It's, in fact, it's bizarre that in a highly armed country like Germany at the time, yes. that he actually flew the, almost the whole length of Germany from Munich north um, and nothing happened. And also a person of his prestige. Um, uh, he um, was. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, there are lots of rumours. Mm. Lots of rumours. It's as if either the, the British knew he was coming or the Germans knew he was going. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Right. 
The only person who didn't know was the Duke of Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so his wife, he wrote to yeah, He wrote to his wife from prison and said, uh, my dear Elise, um, I had just had an overwhelming feeling of loneliness mixed with awe at the fabulous beauty of the evening light over the sea. It kind of smacks of a romantic notion, in effect. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And, anyway. and you have to ask the question as, even though Goebbels and co. perpetuated it, did he have an unbalance? Did, did something trip out in the poor man's brain and um, a, a momentary uh, lapse into madness? I have no idea. Yeah. It's uh, all speculation, it's, it's, but it's, it's good fun speculation. It's, it's wonderful. Hmm. Um, so you kind of feel sorry for the guy a little bit. Indeed. <laughs> So how does your family get involved? How does my family get involved? Oh, dear. Um, my, uh, my grandmother, uh, on my mother's side of the family, was an Aitchison. And my great-grandfather was a tenant farmer on the Duke of Hamilton's estate. Right. So I can put hand on heart and say I have a little connection there. Indeed. Um, I was brought up on stories of the mad Nazi who flew to Scotland. <laughs> And um, crashed his plane near my great grandfather's farm. Brilliant! Yeah. That's, that's that was the folklore. Um, at the time of this uh, incident, my mum uh, was would be in her mid twenties, and she was working as a kitchen superintendent in a hospital called Hare Myers. Now Hare Myers is south of Glasgow, mm-hmm. and it's north of the Duke of Hamilton's home. And interestingly, it's kind of very close to where my mother was born, so it's it's in a kind of a tight circle mm, in, in, mm. in central Scotland. Anyway, um, yeah, here Myers um, during the war was um, seen as a, a great place for people to go and recover from their war wounds because it was actually quite a nice place to be. Yes, and quite quite remote. Or quite well, remote-ish a, for Scotland. Yes, a long way from <laughs> intruding in, in Germans. Yes. Well, Apart did, from one. Yeah, well, there's another little family story that, that there was. my mother was in Glasgow at the time and the Germans were bombing the Glasgow docks. And all these uh, ladies were instructed to go down to the, the bomb shelters underneath the buildings. And my mother and a pal who were, had a little bit more of um, get up and go decided to go to the top of the building and they watched the blitz from there. Right. Good <laughs> on them. The stories of my childhood. Eh? Indeed. Anyway... Um, the Duke of Hamilton. Actually, the Duke of Hamilton's dog appears in, in a picture of my mm. grandmother here. Anyway, nice. Um, Dungable House was the former hunting lodge of the Duke of Hamilton, and it was slightly southwest of Straven, where my mother was born, and it was situated in a, in a, a grouse moor, or a place where you would go and hunt grouse, yeah. hunt the grouse. Mm. Uh-huh. And uh, that was Hess's destination for his peace mission. It's quite an impressive house, isn't what can it? I say? When I'm I look at photos of houses, those big grand houses, oh. I think, well, I'd hate, hate to have to vacuum it. <laughs> <laughs> it probably had a dozen bedrooms by the look of it. Yeah. Now, Hess claims that he did meet the Duke of Hamilton. Yes, he did. In well, 1938 at the Olympic Games. Mm hmm. Um, I I can't understand his uh, internal workings, how he thought that he could, someone who he'd barely met mm. that time ago, 
um, would have had some sort of clout in the British government. Right. Maybe it was just the title, maybe, mm, mm. you know, it's, it was a title. Anyway, um, this is another bit of family folklore coming up. So on the night of uh, 10th of May 1941, um, round about Dungable House, as previously mentioned, his aircraft ran out of fuel. It was a long way from Munich where he took Indeed. off. And uh, he parachuted safely uh, near a town called Eaglesham, which is about 15 miles northwest of um, where he was hoping to land. And I don't believe there was a runway there, so there was, there was going to be a crash landing Indeed. of some sort. <laughs> it was going to come, come uh-huh. down in the end, right. Um, interestingly, Eaglesham is near, again, to the previously mentioned here, Myers Hospital. And my family folklore suggests that some of the young female staff working at the hospital, on hearing the doomed aircraft pass by uh, and uh, crashing, they um, lifted their skirts and ran across the fields to um, intercept his parachute. Of course, they were made of silk. It was made of silk. Parachutes were um, extremely popular um, as material for making undergarments, mm. much superior to the local supply. <laughs> And that's um, that's just a story that sticks in my mind. Mm. And uh, the story goes that the home guard soldiers who had turned up uh, had to show great restraint to protect the shaken pilot and his parachute from the determined young lady's presence. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, look, you can go. just picture the scene from Dad's oh, Army, can't yeah. you? <laughs> Very similar. Anyway, this... Um, shall we call him a deranged German, mm. was uh, tried at the Nuremberg trials and spent the rest of his life in, in Spandau jail. Yeah. Uh, really sad. And uh, it, he was used as a pawn in some ways because the, I think it was the French, the British, the Americans and the Russians were all involved in guarding him at, at certain yes. times. Um, and I think they did like two years each. Mm. So there was always... Uh, a contingent of of different countries yes. guarding them, so it's kind of like a political and situation. Again, I've, I've always thought that was strange that they didn't say, "Well, he's been in prison now for twenty five years." Um, no, but no, they the, the authorities were insistent on keeping yep. him locked up to the end, which yes. just adds to the mystery. Yes, it was politically expedient mm. to have a, a foot in the door, if you like. Mm. Anyway, um, there are uh, there are many many claims surrounding the flight and it's how it uh, how it was put together and so forth. And I have a couple of favourites. And if you excuse me, I think I might just read them out to you. Certainly, go for it. <laughs> uh, in in twenty eleven, uh, a gentleman called Matthias Uhl of the German Historical Institute in Moscow unearthed some purported evidence for. Uh, claims around Hess's flight. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, Rudolf Hess's adjutant, a Karl Heinz Pinch, had handed Hitler an explanatory letter from Hess on the morning after the flight. And all discovered a report featuring Pinch's description of that encounter in the State Archive of the Russian Federation. How it got there, I wouldn't know. And uh, Pinch claimed that Hitler received his report calmly. The flight occurred by prior arrangement with the English, Pinch wrote, adding that Hess was tasked to use all means at his disposal to achieve, 
if not a German military alliance with England against Russia, at least the neutralization of England. Now, both of those are uh, massive, mm, mm. <laughs> to put it mildly. Indeed. Uh-huh. Um, this version aligns well with Soviet claims dating back to Stalin himself that British intelligence services had been in touch with Hess and Dupton into making the flight. Uh, that's almost um, fairy story stuff, I think. Yes, it is indeed. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, in fact, they may align too well, for the statement was produced during the decade when this uh, German pinch was often tortured and uh, the language smacks of Cold War propaganda. Mm. Um, so it sounds like the Russians may have coerced the version from the incarcerated German. Right, that's one theory. That's that one. Another that's one, one theory. Um, I actually quite like the second one, but um, there's a gentleman called Albert Spears, Albert's, yeah, Albert Spears, sorry, mm. and he was the guy who uh, was planning the rebuilding of Germany. Yes. He, he held a very high position in yes. the hierarchy. He, he was the architect. He was the architect, mm. and he's actually written some um, interesting histories on that subject. Anyway, uh Albert Speer was waiting outside Hitler's office during the meeting discussing the Hess flight and uh, described the Nazi leader's reaction as an inarticulate, almost animal outcry of rage. (laughs) And and that has a sense of um, truth about it, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And what bothered Hitler the most was that Churchill might use the incident to pretend to Germany's allies that Hitler was extending a peace feeler. Mm. And uh, Hitler went on to say, who will believe me when I say that Hess did not fly there in my name and that the whole thing is some, not some sort of intrigue behind the backs of the, of the Allies. Mm. And he was worried that Japan might change her policy as well. And uh, apparently Hitler went on to say um, that he hoped that Hess might with luck crash and die in the North Sea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that... that- the way that's phrased, and I'll, I'll read a lot into it, mm-hmm. that he knew what Hess was doing before he actually arrived mm, that's, there. That's what's trying to be portrayed there, I think. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. Um, and I think Hess was uh, maybe, can I use the word deranged? Mm. Maybe. Um, and he was a bit of a puppet, really, mm. of his own making, I suspect. Mm. Who knows? The truth is out there somewhere. Oh, well. Um, and uh, persistent theories have suggested that Hess's ill-fated peace mission was actually carried out with Hitler's knowledge and in the understanding that he, Hess, would be disavowed as insane if it failed. Right. <laughs> so yes. there we go. And yet there, there are just as many more theories kicking around, I guess. Uh, just try and Google it. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh-huh. Um I'd like to digress for a minute, because I'm not quite finished with the Duke of Hamilton. Right. The Duke of Hamilton was actually quite a competent pilot in his own right. Uh, and with the assistance of a, a, a very wealthy lady called Lady Houston, um, she entertained uh, Lord Clydesdale, as um, the Duke of Hamilton was known, uh, and he was entertained at her um, Scottish hunting lodge. And uh, he went there to ask this lady to fund an expedition to fly over the top of Mount Everest. 
Mm. Now, this is in 1932. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have pressurised cockpits uh, at this stage, do we? No, and, and fabric-covered wings and yes. interesting big engines. But apparently he impressed this lady by um, dressing in his, in his kilt for dinner. Oh, good man. Good man. Anyway, um, she, des- she decided that she would fund the expedition. And uh, she would remain closely involved at all stages um, from the planning and leaving from England. So right. He found favour. Uh, he wasn't um, a very old person at this time, uh, and he was then known as the youngest squadron leader in the Royal Air Force. And he commanded 602 Squadron, which was based in Glasgow. Mm. Interesting. Anyway, uh, he... Uh, he was the pilot of uh, one of the aircraft. Uh, they were Westland Wallaces, I believe. And a gentleman called uh, Flight Lieutenant David Fowler McIntyre, also of 602 Squadron, uh, flew the other aircraft. They were, the planes were modified uh, in a little way, I guess, but the observer at least um, had a lid over his cockpit so his head wasn't sticking out in the freezing air. But the pilot was. <laughs> the though. pilots were. Um, the aircraft was equipped with early oxygen systems and they had facilities for heated flying clothing. That must have been fairly basic, I think. Mm. Um, but wouldn't the piston engines be really starving uh, of oxygen at, at, at that height? At that height, yes. They'd be getting to the limits of what they could put out. be fairly thin. Oh, yeah. Um, how high is Mount Everest? 27,000 feet. Yeah, it's up there. Mm. That's about the height you fly to Auckland from Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, the the aircraft was shipped to uh, northern India by by boat, obviously, and um, the flight took place and it was successful. So, mm. and a gentleman previously mentioned, Mister McIntyre, uh, he went on to develop um, quite a big business at Prestwick Airport near where I was born. Right. Uh, it's called Scottish Aviation, of all things, and uh, that's another story in itself. Indeed. And uh, just to round it off, I have a nice picture here of my great-grandfather, Mr. Brownlee, sitting in his Model T. And in the back is my my granny and my mother. Right. <laughs> and it was taken around about 1920, I guess. Um, but this gentleman, Mr. Brownlee, and the previously mentioned Mr. Aitchison uh, were well known to each other in the farming communities. So, right. Um, yeah. It's just, a, it's just part of my family folklore. And isn't it interesting how it all interweaves with one of the major mysteries of World War Two, that of Rudolf Hess? Oh, well, that's, that's my tiny connection. <laughs> Indeed. Well, John, that actually brings us into the programme, so that's very well timed. So thank you for that. It's so, a pleasure. Um, and I guess people can simply go to Google and look up Rudolf Hess. Oh, and, I wish they would. And, and explore the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See if you can figure out what really happened. Indeed. You've been listening to Aviation Past and Present with John Skeen and myself, Graham Joyce. Listen again this time next month and we will have another interesting topic of aviation to explore. We surely will. Thank you. This programme is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.